Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A career in the city running athletics in this country for a decade, chair of World Para Athletics, chair of British Wheelchair Rugby. Now, the writer of Sport Inc. and columns in the newspaper City AM. Sometimes you just don't know how someone manages to fit it all in. I'm Michael. And I'm John, and we say that Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy is the behind-the-scene conversation of British sport. Well, our guest in this episode has those conversations very much in public, never afraid to have his say on what he thinks is happening rightly or wrongly in British sport. I'm Ed Warner. I'm not quite sure how I'll describe myself. I think jack of all trades in sport. How about that? Well, let's kick off, Ed, if we can, by asking what it is you're doing now. So what's your kind of main roles these days? Well, I, I still do a few things in the city. I chair a couple of investment companies that are listed in the FTSE 250 and a privately owned FX exchange. They pay the family bills. Uh, but in sport, which is probably why we're talking now, I chair Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby, proud winners of the gold medal at the Tokyo Paralympics with um, all eyes on Paris now. The charity at Crystal Palace Football Club, the Palace for Life Foundation. And I do write this weekly blog called Sport Inc., which is on the Substack platform if you're having a look for it. And you, as we said right at the start, still have some very strong opinions about sport and like to share them, don't you? Yeah, I, I'm probably seen as a bit of an enfant terrible amongst the uh, the establishment in the sporting hierarchy, um, DCMS, the funding agencies and so on. I think their toes curl and their eyebrows raise whenever they hear my name um, because I cross swords with them quite often in my 10 years as chair of UK Athletics. But I've got to the age now, um, just turned 60, in which if I can't speak my mind, when will I ever be able to do that? So let's rewind, Ed, the investment banker. How do you then get to be the man in charge, effectively, of UK athletics? Well, I'll I'll cut the shaggy dog story a little bit short. I was very much a fan of the sport, had taken the family to the Athens Olympics as a summer holiday, used to go to Crystal Palace every year, member of a running club down in Sussex, where I live, um, and a sort of keen but not very good trail runner, road runner, that sort of thing. 
And I saw the vacancy for a chair advertised when British Athletics was very much in the doldrums on the track and off the track back in 2006. I just sold a business in the city to one of our competitors. And I thought, well, that could be me. I applied for it. And I, I think talking to the people after I got the job that applications fell into two camps. They were either former elite athletes, names that you would know who didn't know much about boardrooms, or they were boardroom exponents, sort of FTSE 100 chairs and chief executives who fancied running athletics all the way through to the London 2012 Olympics. And I was the guy in the middle who knew a little bit about athletics and could prove I ran, albeit not very well, for a local club. And I knew quite a bit about boardrooms. And the, if you drew the Venn diagram, there was a little overlap in the middle. I was probably in that bit of overlap. Um, and I lucked out and got through. And all the way through the process, every time I was interviewed and got to the next stage, I couldn't quite believe it until I got the call and I said I got it. And um, everything changed for me then because it became uh, overwhelmingly the biggest part of my life for 10 years. And what were the main, you said that they were in the doldrums at that point. I think it was just after the Pickett's Lock fiasco about trying to stage a world championships in a stadium that wasn't built and, and never looked likely to be. You had the impending Olympics on the way in 2012 and then a, a world championships as well in, in 2017. So what were your what were your main challenges when you first went in as chair? Well, funny enough, we, we didn't have those world championships at that point. We'd had the, the Pickett's Lock fiasco and a lot of my time in the chair was leading the bid for the right to host those 2017 World Championships, fighting off Qatar. Um, no, there, were, there were two things, really. On the track, uh, they'd had a, a really poor World Championships in Helsinki in 2005 and then a poor European Championships in 2006. And with the Olympics coming, the feeling was Britain had to win medals and wasn't likely to do that. But behind the scenes, the finances of the organisation were, not to put it, not to find a point on it, shanked. And um, there was no money. And really, they needed that sorting out. And a lot of what I'd had to do early on wasn't about overseeing what was happening with the British team, although we might want to get onto that when we changed our head coach. But it was very much about straightening out the finances. And what they needed was, yes, yeah, someone who was financially literate in the chair, um, making sure there was an organisation that, that really knew what was what financially. And, and that just hadn't been the case. There, there weren't really two pennies to rub together. And here we are, and we're back in the same situation. In the current day, there are no not two pennies to rub together again. Yeah, and it's 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 very very sad. Although let's face it, um, on the track, um, the team had a fantastic World Championships this summer, uh, equaling the best ever haul of medals with ten. I, I was delighted to see that because you know, those those things don't happen overnight. And, and credit to everybody involved, the coaches and the athletes, and and the current leadership of the organisation, which I think is very good. But really, there was after I left in 2017, there was a succession of chairs and chief executives who frankly performed very poorly and their biggest error was taking their eye off the ball on the commercial front on the broadcast front they allowed their bbc contract to run down putting all the negotiating power in the hands of the beeb um, and the beeb used that power to uh, walk away from the deal and they're showing athletics now but they're not paying for the privilege of doing that that was a big part of our model and they have got a headline sponsor in the way that we had you know we had Aviva we had Sainsbury's we had Muller um we haven't got one of those either and if you take away those two big chunks of cash um you know you're, you're not gonna be able to pay the bills and they're, they're completely dependent really now on lottery funding and ticket sales when they put on big events and they, they they're lacking those the cream that makes the difference in the, in the PL account 
we will go on and talk about the transformation that you oversaw in terms of performance on the track. But in terms of what you had to do behind the scenes, and maybe British athletics are listening right now and might want to copy this model, and you hinted at it there, what, what did you have to do when you came in as chair? You've got to have a really strong chief executive who's got a some commercial flair to them. Um, and we had that for all of my 10 years. I hired, um, with the good help of headhunters and others, Niels DeVos, who did a fantastic job, I think, um, I, I believe. And, and they've got that now in Jack Buckner, but they went through a succession of CEOs in the meantime who, who really didn't live up to that standard. And if I had to tip my hat to to Niels on, on one thing alone on the commercial side, he negotiated a fantastic arrangement with Nike. We switched from Adidas to Nike as our kit supplier um, and a very long-term deal that was extremely lucrative. And in many ways, that was the cornerstone of our financial modern. And it allowed him to look at some innovation on the events front. It certainly uh, facilitated our efforts with the World Championship. It was, as, as the governing body, it was, it was a bedrock we could fall back on. Um, and I think the other thing, you, you've got to have ambition for the sport to have showcases. And if I go all the way back to 2010, 2011, when we were contemplating bidding for those world championships, I met lots of people who weren't really up for the fight in government, at DCMS, at UK Sports initially. And, and, and Niels and I had to work extremely hard to persuade people to get behind that bid. Once they were behind it, they were fantastic supporters, but it took a lot to get them over the start line. Largely because England had had a massive embarrassment in failing to win uh, the Football World Cup hosting rights. And they didn't want to go 2-0 down in big event bids. Um, and as it was, we enabled them to go one all, if you like, in, in beating Qatar. And that, for me, galvanised so much commercially for us, um, for the sport. It provided visibility, created domestic fan interest that was latent. Everybody loves athletics, but you've got to tease it out. You've got to get people out into a stadium, buying tickets. And uh, that's a, a massive magnet, if you like, of interest. And we've got the European Championships coming to Birmingham in 2026. I hope that will have a similar effect. You saw some of that effect with Birmingham Commonwealth Games last year. But you've got to keep those big athletic events rolling through Great Britain and, and everything else for the governing body can spin around it. And for a period, um, again, post-2017, they flip-flopped around, um, probably took their eye off the ball, spent time worrying about the wrong things and let the big things slide. Thankfully, through all of this, the athletes have delivered. And, and I think that's testament to what you have to, to do to succeed in, in, in such a brutally competitive sport as athletics. You've got to be able to put the blinkers on. And I think British athletes have done that to, to great success. So right now, UK Athletics has got the opportunity to continue to rebuild because it's got stars and emerging stars to build upon. I agree, Ed, that at the start you said um, that people, when you appear, maybe people at British Athletics or DCMS go, oh, no, Ed's going to start talking again. Um, it's not all about being critical. You mentioned some of the good things that, that Jack Buckner and, and the team have done. One of the big controversies ahead of the World Championships with a smaller team, but it's something that he's had work at, at British Swimming in the past. What, what did you make of that? Just taking 50 athletes who were more likely to all appear in a final or probably a, or aiming for that podium? Well, I'll, I'll offer you two comparator teams. I'll offer you France and Germany at those World Championships who had teams of over 70 athletes. So almost half as big again as the British team. Um, Germany won the grand total of no medals. 
and France won the grand total of one medal right at the end in one of the relays when they weren't expecting it. And they're hosting the, the Olympics and Paralympics next year. They also had a pretty poor summer of Paralympic athletics in France for the French team as well. Um, I, I've spoken to people at British Athletics about that decision, and I, I tend to agree with it. They did take one or two athletes that did get invitations from World Athletics, so, but they didn't take the majority that got those invitations. And I understand that they believe Commonwealth Games and European Championships and age group championships are the right ways to blood up-and-coming athletes, not to necessarily throw them into the World Championship mix too early. And the reason for that, for those that are outside the logistics of the sport, is that if you take a big team, you've got to take more doctors, more physios, more support staff. Um, there's so much more to juggle with. And you often get left as the championships get deeper through the, through the 10 days with athletes that have gone out in the first round of their competition knocking around the athlete village or the or the athlete's hotel with too much time on their hands and they are a distraction um so if you can focus all your support staff on those athletes who've got a genuine chance you'll maximize those those conversion rates and, and going into these championships um this summer in budapest if you'd totted up the number of possible british medals and then compared it with the 10 that they won they had a very high conversion rate of possibilities to actuals and i think that really underlines the, the rationale behind Stephen Maguire as technical director and, and Jack Buckner's decision to, to keep the team to a sensible size. And, and I suspect they'll do that again for the Olympics and they'll do it again for future world championships because the, the proof was in the outcome. Also, you said something earlier that everybody uh, enjoys athletics and you can always get people to come to a stadium. You've got to have the events, as you say. But of course, that also means, Ed, that everyone has an opinion on athletics and there's also a lot of people who are competing uh who maybe don't meet 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 teams who want to have their say as well so that is that's the downside isn't it that actually it is such a massive sport in this country still but everybody has a view on it i love that isn't that great i mean it's 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 pub chatter isn't it i mean i'm i'm as guilty as the next person of that now i'm outside the sport i've got a view um you want people to have views on sport that's yeah one of my arbiters of People's interest in sport is if you read, for example, the Times uh, app and look at a sporting article and then go to the comments below. Um, I want to see hundreds of comments on an article about my sport. I don't want to see two. Um, if, if there are hundreds, that means people are stimulated by it. They're stimulated to care about it, think about it, criticise it. I mean, you, you, you shouldn't run a governing body if you haven't got really thick skin. You've got to be prepared to take a lot of flack. I, I won't name them, but I wrote a piece for Sporting, my blog, I'll, pu I'll push it again there, um, a few months ago about the almost impossibility of being chief executive of a big sport uh, because of the, the, the plethora of pressures on you and often conflicting opinions that you were, people demanded you reconciled. And I know there's a, there's a WhatsApp group of chief executives of sport and apparently it went round, my article went round the WhatsApp group like wildfire. And I had a message from the CEO of one of the really biggest sports saying, Ed, you're bang on. These jobs are impossible. And, um, yeah, hats off to, to them for sticking with it and doing, I think, a very good job in the sport that they run. But um, if, you, if you put your head into that noose, don't be surprised there are people who want to tug on it. Um, but, but you do it because you love the sport, you love the variety of um, responsibilities it gives you things that you see people you meet and the opportunity to 
make a difference, whether that's at the grassroots or just finding those, God, I hate the phrase, but I'll use those marginal gains that Dave Brailsford uh, was always looking for in cycling that, 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 that mean afterwards you can step back and say, we're somewhere we wouldn't have been without me. And that's a better place. And when you talk about leadership in the big sports, so let's talk about athletics, let's talk about cycling, swimming, the big sports. Do you think that the chairs of those organisations, as you said right at the start, and the chief executives of those organisations need to have had some experience in the sport, even if that's perhaps not at an elite level, but the grassroots, the mass participation will not accept a chief executive, for example, at British Athletics, who has no history or track record in the sport? In theory, you'd like to say, no, 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 they can come from outside. But what I've seen in practice suggests that um, absolutely they should. They've got to be able to prove their love. I, um, I, I've often said to people who've asked me that, one of your opening questions about yeah, how I ended up in the job, um, that I could say I had muddy trainers, um, that, you know, I, I did... I could I could talk about a 10k that I'd done at the weekend, you know, not in a great time, but you know, on, on, I had honestly turned up in a muddy field, you know, in the rain, whatever, run for my club, got a couple of points in a league race, whatever it might be, and, and it just breaks the ice um, to be able to. I mean, I can remember a, an interview; um, they were asking my view of the state of the team, and I, I, I could honestly say, look, I just don't know. I'll work it out. I'll work with people to understand how these things operate uh, in terms of athlete development. But I was in Athens for the Olympics with the family. We went on the 100 metres final night. Um, didn't see a Brit in the final of the 100. They went out in the semi. Saw Philip Sidowu, um three no jump in the triple jump and said, therefore, not, not make the final three jumps. And he was somebody who should have got a medal, could have got a medal. And we were in the stadium watching on the big screen as Paula Radcliffe stepped off the road in the marathon, um, the heat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I know what it's like as a fan to experience disappointment in British athletes and what that meant for me, the showpiece night we had in a week of watching different sports at the Olympics. And yeah, that was that was really a, a punch in the guts as someone who'd looked forward to that for ages. And, and you know, I, I recounted all of that in interview and, and they got it. They got that I cared. They got that I, I, I didn't understand the nuances of, of, of why and what it took. But I was someone who had a passion. And I have seen chairs of other sports. I've met them. I've met them, frankly, in successes of mine at, at UK Athletics. Nossi and Beattie, who's very much an athletics man, who's in the chair now, is great. Um, who I don't think could demonstrate that passion. And if you just see it as a, a means to an end of currying favour with UK sports or... Yeah, I don't know, sort of being able to be in the right rooms, then you're the wrong person for the job. And just to finish that, I did spend six months as chair, interim chair of British Equestrian, having been asked by UK Sport to go in and sort out their governance, which, which I did as a, a project. And they wanted me to stay on permanently. And I just was not going to do that because I can't fall in love with horse sport. Um, yeah, I like looking at a horse from a distance. Um, I've been on the back of one a couple of times, fallen off once, hated it. Um, but if you'd ask me, do you next weekend want to go and watch some three-day eventing? The answer would be no. And if the answer in your heart is no, don't do the job. But I think there are people out there chairing sports who actually rather resent the fact they had to go and watch some sport. And, and when you're in that position, you're not going to do a great job for them. 
And you mentioned it was such a tough job, or it is such a tough job being a, a chief executive of a sport in this country. And yet we see the chief executives go from organisation to organisation. They can't quite leave it, whether you were at badminton, for example, you're now at table tennis and cycling to netball to swimming or whatever. This merry-go-round exists. So it must be a job that people, once they start doing it, find difficult to walk away. Why is that? Um, well, I, you, you cited there the first one. You said badminton table tennis, which is exactly Adrian Christie, who's at table tennis England now, was at badminton before. And I, I know Adrian well. He's fantastic. I've got he was really the first guest on this podcast, actually. Well, well there we are. Um, Adrian's great. <laughs> and um, they just won the um, right to host the world champs in London, which is, which is great for them. Um, I, I think there's... There's two ways to look at it. One is they are specialist skills that are required. And once you've learned those skills and you've learned the network, you understand how the politics of it all works, then you're going to want to stick with it. And if you love sport, it's in your blood and you want to stick with it. Conversely, there are people who I think are trapped in the sporting leadership world because they don't know anything else. And they haven't been able to work out which of their skills are transferable and how to transfer them. And those people I feel sorry for. And, and finding a way out into another industry is hard, just as it's quite hard to find your way in from outside the industry. It's um, it's a very particular goldfish bowl, and it's quite a small one. Uh, it's not – sport is a massive industry, but if you strip out football, um, it's not as big as industry as you might imagine, given how many hours of it's on our television. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. We're talking to ex-chair of UK Athletics, Ed Warner, and current chair of British Wheelchair Rugby. We're going to come on to Paris uh, and the Olympics and Paralympics in a moment, Ed. But your biggest success for UK Athletics in that 10 years, 2007 to 2017, uh, for me, Super Saturday and the World Athletics Championships. But you tell us. Um, I think it was winning the right to host the World Championships in London in 2017. I mean, we put on a fantastic event, sold a million tickets across two World Championships back-to-back, the Olympic discipline and the Paralympic discipline. And I really enjoyed chairing those events and seeing people come to that stadium and and and, and light up their faces with some phenomenal athletics, well presented. But really, if, if I took that to one moment, it was in November the 11th, um, 2011, when we won that bid against Qatar. And that was the culmination of a year of really hard work, some grubby lobbying that one had to do, things that didn't make you feel good, people you had to interact with, you know, one or two of whom have been drummed out of the sport as a result of the, the corrupt regime of Lamine Diak, who was Sebco's predecessor. And sort of wading through that treacle, um, needing a shower many evenings just to wash away the memories of, of, of the, the day was... To end up with Diak, curse him, um, opening the envelope and saying the winner is London was was really something because it was a binary outcome. You either won or you lost. And we won. We proved the doubters wrong who thought that we'd lose to the money of Qatar and the money of Qatar was substantial. Uh, And it was the lure of, I think, the greatest city in the world, greatest showcase for athletics that we've seen in London 2012, winning through with... I have to say, once people got behind it, phenomenal support from the mayor, Boris Johnson at the time, um, 
the sports minister, Hugh Robertson, Sebco himself, who was one of the voters on the council for the IWF, now World Athletics, and some people who were on the bid team with us. We had Denise Lewis there. We had Jody Williams, the young sprinter there, young at the time. And um, it all came together. And it felt like we were, this will sound very cheesy, but so forgive me, but we were giving something to the athletics nation of Great Britain. And I think we did. We then delivered it. So, yeah, it, it, there were lots of things that made me very proud. Super Saturday was fantastic. Everybody always wants to talk to me about that. But that moment of winning a bid, because that was where the boardroom and the sports and the things I'd done down the years, um, the art of, of politics, the art of business all came together to make it a success. How important was it, Ed, that you had the stadium and that the London Olympic Stadium was staying for that bid? And what would you say about you know, thoughts that maybe UK Athletics might pull away from that stadium? Number one, it was completely critical. I mean, let, let's remember we had, you referred it to it earlier, the Pickett's Lock fiasco of Britain um, effectively pulling out of a London world champs and trying to switch them to Sheffield, which which failed uh, as, a, as a, a negotiating ploy. There, there had to be no doubts in the mind of the voters on the council of the IWF that, that we would keep that stadium for athletics. And the way we did that in the end, we got a letter from David Cameron, the Prime Minister, addressed to the council of the IAAF via Lamine Diak that promised the athletics track would remain. And it was only at that moment in which we presented the letter face-to-face to the bid evaluation team that was kicking the tyres in London a couple of months before the vote that any residual doubts fell away. And I think without that letter, without that promise, um, the bid would have flunked and we'd have lost easily to Qatar. The Looking forwards, it, it all depends whether Ian Beattie as chair and Jack Butler as chief executive can find commercial posts to reflate the balance sheets of UK athletics. If they can do that, then plough on with using that stadium, which they used very successfully this summer for the Diamond League. And use it to host future global and and European events. If, however, they can't find commercial partners, then they might want to look at doing a deal to flip their home for big events from London to Birmingham, where the Alexander Stadium has been redeveloped. I'd hate to see them have to do that. But if someone said to them, here's a cheque for £20 million, 15, whatever the number they could negotiate, and that shores up the governing body for the next 10 years, then that's a deal they might have to do. But I hope it wouldn't come to it. I think they've looked at it. Um, they haven't got a negotiating hand because there's not spared chunks of money floating around to do that deal. And it's not for West Ham to do that deal. It would be for the legacy company that owns and runs the stadium. And, and that's a public body and it hasn't got a lot of cash. It would be tough. So I'd love to see them stay, but it has to be part of a package in which they find headline sponsors, in which they get a broadcast deal in place. And I'm sure they're working on all those all, all those challenges. Look into your crystal ball for us then. Do you think we will still be hosting major athletics in London in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I think for choice we will. I really hope we do. Look, there are other there are other factors in the mix. So if one of the co-owners of West Ham, David Gold, died recently, as you'll know, and that changes the dynamic again of the ownership of West Ham. And if if one day we wake up and find that West Ham are now owned by an entirely new owner, they've got a fresh investor from Czech Republic who's in there, you know, if he took the whole thing over, would he have different ambitions for the stadium? Would he want to negotiate a deal to buy out UK athletics? He might do. Um, somebody else might want to buy that club further down the line. So 
I don't think you can rule any possibility out, uh, but I think on the balance of probability, we will still be seeing athletics there in 10 years' time. You mentioned Super Saturday, and just before John goes on and asks you a little bit about Paris and your role with GB Wheelchair Rugby, were we just incredibly fortunate to get Jessica Ennis, Mo Farah and Greg Rutherford at one time, or was that just part of the culmination of some of the changes and the restructuring you had to make on the performance side of the organisation, I don't. I don't think. Well, look, three in, three gold medals in, however many minutes it was. Yeah, clearly, all the stars aligned, and you'd never have predicted that. Um, Mo's gold was a strong possibility, maybe even a probability. Um, Jess Ennis clearly was one of the favourites for her events, but it's athletics; if things happen all the time. Greg's goal was a surprise and a, and a wonderful one and, and, and a goal for a, a fantastic man, a fantastic athlete, which is, which is serendipitous. But um, I, I can look across the course of 2012 and say that we missed lots of other medals that we could have had. And there was a moment in the middle of the week, I can't remember which athlete it was that we really had thought was going to win a medal who, who didn't, that I was thinking, oh my God, you know, if we don't get any more, then what am I going to do? Three gold medals in one day at the beginning isn't enough uh, for this nation. And we ended up with six and that was great. It was on target. And of course we got those, uh, got those goals and Mo got his second goal. But um, the, the margins are so fine in athletics. It's a truly global sport. People win, then lose by inches and, and microseconds. And um, I, 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 just, I would say that I'm as disappointed with the medals we didn't win in 2012 as I'm exhilarated by the three goals that we got on Super Saturday. And those outcomes was the result of great work by coaches and athletes. And all the governing body in athletics can do is try and put the right environment around those coach-athlete pairs. And the environment that we put around was led by Charles Van Commenay, and he was a controversial hire. So one of the big decisions Niels de Vos made, which backed him up on, was changing head coach and going overseas, which riled a lot of died-in-the-wool, long-standing, very good British coaches who thought it was maybe shouldn't have been them, but it was wrong that we went overseas to, um, to have our programme led by a Dutchman. But it was the right call because he brought in a culture of to use another Dave Brailsford phrase, sort of, oh no, more a UK sport, Dave Brailsford phrase, no compromise. But he he didn't compromise. He was a very uncompromising figure, um, divisive in some quarters, teed some people off, but was the right thing for the sport, galvanised it and really delivered. And, and he got to the end of that process and said, I thought we could get eight medals, therefore I'm going to resign because his, his standards, he said himself, were so high. I'd rather he had done. Um, but he made public the thought he could get eight medals and he stood by his decision to go when we didn't get eight. And that was just a measure of the man, the scale of his ambition and his unwillingness to flex um, or to compromise on having high standards. More than 10 years on, Ed, the world has changed. You mentioned UK Sport. They have a, a new target for their athletes, this uh, Paris Olympics and Paralympics, and that's to win, but win well. Do you understand what that means? Yeah, and I understand where it's come from. And I, in many ways, I agree with it. I've been a, a big critic of the old regime, um, the Liz Nickel chief executive era. And um, it was it was too rigid in the way that it dispersed its funds across the sports. Uh, British wheelchair rugby was, as we it's a high profile case, was chopped from funding after Rio 
uh, before my time with them when they came, the team came fifth, the Rio Paralympics, and they lost all their funding. And when we went to, and I was hired as, as chair in the meantime, and they went, we went to Tokyo. I couldn't go actually because of COVID, wasn't allowed to, but um, the team went to Tokyo and won a gold medal. And that was a metaphorical two fingers to the old system. But it doesn't mean that you chop sports from funding and they go and win gold medals. <laughs> won a gold medal because, again, lots of stars aligned and there's humongous amounts of hard work to scrape money together to fund the team. And it shouldn't be like that for any sport. There needs to be a minimum level of support for Olympic and Paralympic sports to give athletes a chance and the best chance that you can give them within the constraints of funding. So for me, winning and winning well is a recognition that you have to soften your criteria at the margins to make sure everybody's on the same boat. Uh, and well, that would be a Euro star, won't it, to Paris? And you come away from a game feeling proud of the way you went about it. So that will be giving everybody a chance on the team um, to every sport a chance to be there, whether they can qualify or not. And the, the medals you win, you walk away from thinking we did it in a way the nation can be proud of. And I think, you know, we're not looking for people to cheat. I don't think that's a you know, natural inclination in, in any sport, although temptation is out there. Um, yeah, clearly, we don't want to be pushing athletes to the point at which they look to cut corners in, in the way they live. Um, certainly the things they put in their arms and that they they had the right spirit on the field of play and it is a fine line because we like to win i said earlier it was you know, we pointed out germany got no medals and france only got one of the world championships i quite enjoyed that um because i'm a very proud brit and i enjoyed the fact the british team got 10 medals so it is sport it's elite sport it's not happy clappy um but uh and we want to win but there has to be a recognition that we can't do it in ways that afterwards when you get the drains up, you think, well, that was wrong. And I think some of the ways that some sports and UK sport went about it uh, in the era before the current leadership under Sally Monday, yeah, didn't make me feel very proud to be associated with the, with the movement. Ed, I could talk to you all day, but I better ask a last question. Um, you mentioned you mentioned about the, uh, the, the British wheelchair rugby success in Tokyo. How much of a game changer was that? And can you maintain that for Paris next year? I'll do well. It is a game changer in that the second most watched um, Paralympic event on Channel Four uh, in that summer of 2021, as it was, uh, was that final yeah, early on a Sunday morning. Um, One point something million people uh, dialed in to tuned in to see that. Uh, I think it was beaten only by Johnny Peacock's hundred meter final, and. Um, it's those those 12 athletes that won a gold medal um it's been life-changing for them they've all got mbes as a result as as has the head coach it's fantastic and but they've given themselves opportunities to be speakers motivators to go into other uh fields a number of them are still in the squad which is great um and we've seen a, a strong pickup in membership and interest in the sport at grassroots level, which is all of which is great. That's the inspiration that you're looking for. As to repeatability, I mean, it's brutally tough. We are the first ever European nation to win a Paralympic medal of any colour in the sport. It happens to be gold, um, but the medals up till now typically have gone to Australia, Canada, America, Japan, um, and we've broken into that. Now, they will all be there and strong again in Paris. 
France are looking really good. They're current European championship champions. They beat us in the final in Cardiff earlier this year. Um, Denmark look pretty good. You get eight teams qualify. And I think of the eight, um, I'm guessing six or seven of them could win the gold medal. We'll be one of those in contention. Um, so for me, my current ambition is to is that we win a medal of any colour to prove that we can repeat medal. Um, if we don't want it to be a one-off. Um, but even that's a strong ask. We've got a, we've got a team that excites me. Um, it's in some degree of development. Our leading try scorer at Tokyo retired after the games, um, Jim Roberts. So, yeah, we're having to work around not having him. We'd had him for years. Um, I'm very excited. We've got an event coming up uh, in Paris, which is associated with the Rugby World Cup in October um, to look forward to. And then it's deep into preparations for next summer. But you just won't know till the first tip-off um, how you're looking relative to the competition. And that's what makes the sport, which is so fiercely competitive, um, so great to engage with. Final question then, Ed, to you, just in general terms, how much do we need a good Paralympics next year? Because 2012 was a magnificent Paralympics. We talked about the World Para-Athletics in 2017 as a high watermark. But when I speak, as I did at the weekend at the Great North Run to David Weir and Hannah Cockcroft and others, they feel that parasport has gone backwards and they feel that it was hit much harder by the pandemic than able-bodied sport, for example. So how much do we need a good Paris Paralympics? It, oh, I think we need it massively and it worries me hugely. I've been involved in and around Paralympic sports since about 2010, 2011, um, very actively. And before that, obviously, I knew of it as chair of British Athletics, but I, I chaired World Para Athletics from 2011, I think it was, for 10 years. And um, I, I fear that the interest in Paralympic sports spikes enormously every four years, but it's almost fallow in the intervening period. And it's the duty of everybody associated with Paralympic sport at all levels. That's globally, certainly in Britain, each of the governing bodies, each of the, the national federations to work individually and collectively to find ways to host showpiece events that get people engaged and interested in a very, very crowded sporting market um, to raise the level of interest between games. And then you'll have an upward trajectory over time. At the moment, it feels to me as though Paralympic sport is marking time and that Paris will have, within France, similar resonance to London 2012 had within Britain. Because it's so close to Britain, the time zone's right, we'll be very excited as a British nation. Um, but then for the next three and a half years till Los Angeles... Um, the British public won't really know about it until you get the LA build-up. And that can't be right. But while Paralympic sport, I think, by the, its nature, deserves a greater profile, you can't just sit back and wait for that profile to arrive. You have to go out and earn it and grab it. I said that was the last question, but I've got one more before we say thank you. That said, how much then do we need to save the Commonwealth Games, bearing in mind that it's got this integrated programme? I, don't think, I think the integrated programme is a little bit of a spoof. And um, so if you look at athletics, there's a sprinkling of events within the athletics programme, but uh, they're typically chosen each time to showcase the best athletes from the domestic nation that's hosting the Commonwealth Games. I don't think that's true integration. I think it's great. It's better than you get in many other events, but it's not that alone isn't a reason to try and save the Commonwealth Games. For me, the Commonwealth Games needs to be completely restructured um, maybe not even call it the Commonwealth Games, maybe invite other nations who want to be part of a movement to join in. And it should be showcasing secondary and tertiary sports in the way that it does many at the moment. Um, it should 
possibly be spread around a number of different nations. You can have a multi, multi-site, multi, multi-country games. But most importantly, they've got to strip the costs right back. It's become unwieldy, trying to be a, a bloated mini Olympics. And it needs to go back to what's the cost of putting on each of these sports. Let's add that together. Let's make that the games. And I think it would have a radically smaller budget and be all the better and healthier for it. And I want to see disability sport integrated within it. Um, but I think at the moment, they're just ticking the box in pencil. Um, it's not heavily inked in on the on the inclusion front. Well, Ed Warner, thank. we literally could carry on talking. I mean, we could get into a whole debate about the Commonwealth Games. That's what we love doing. But look, we, we will stop there because we appreciate all of your time. Let's do this again at some point. And uh, thank you so much for talking to great British bosses from anything but footy. Podcast Network.